We're <clears throat> continuing to work this year on our theme, uh, How in the World? How does Christianity work in the real world is what we're considering. And we've looked at a number of different areas, our work life, our leisure life, a uh, number of things. But uh, our current series is the biblical foundation of marriage and family. Uh, we want to know what this Bible says about marriage and family and how that works in the real world because we've gotten quite a ways away from the foundation that was laid in the Bible. Our question, I guess, as we've been putting everything in questions is how in the world in this day and age can a marriage survive? Uh, how can a family thrive in the situation we're in, the society we're in, and the misunderstanding that there is about marriage and family. We concluded on the first week that uh, things are in such a bad state that we, we just got to go back and rebuild the foundation. Uh, we talked about just surrendering, just giving into it and saying, okay, that's the world, the way the world is, and we'll just carry on, uh, accept everything. We talked about trying to make enough rules to stop it. Uh, to change things and make it the way the Bible says. Uh, but we decided none of those would work. So we're just rebuilding the foundations. We're teaching the foundations. It's not going to happen overnight. This is going to go real slowly. Uh, the best that can happen uh, from a series like this, uh, the very best thing that can happen is that some of these young people are listening. Some of these young people will come to understand that what God intended is not what's going on around me in this world. And hopefully we can turn around one new home at a time if we understand what the biblical foundation of marriage and family is. Uh, we started out by looking at the foundation of marriage. We went back to the creation and saw what uh, God's idea was and we saw that the world's idea and a lot of folks in church, their idea is completely different from God's idea. God talks about marriage as a covenant. Uh, the world and a lot of church folks think about marriage as a contract, something that can be made and broken at will. Uh, a covenant's completely different than a contract. Uh, last time we started to try to untangle the, the troubles that we have with gender roles. The way we think about male and female, manhood and womanhood. Uh, and that's just as distorted as the world's idea of marriage. So we've got a long ways to go there. We've got a lot of work to do. And one week on each topic is certainly not going to do it. But we'll hope we can introduce the basics and cause some folks to think. Uh, I think it would be good to review what we talked about last week because this gender role thing is tied up all together. Uh, the foundation was established at creation. We went back to the very beginning and we saw that man was made first. He was supposed to work and guard the garden. He was the one that was told to obey God. He was told about the tree that he was not supposed to eat from. Woman wasn't there yet. But then God said, man needs a helper. It's not good that man be alone. So he made woman. And man and woman were created to become one. Then came the fall. And Satan tempted the woman. And when you put this all in perspective, you start to see how things got out of whack pretty quickly. Uh, Satan tempted the woman. And sometimes we picture that as Eve's over here and Adam's somewhere way off else. If you read the account, Adam was there. 
And what happened was Adam let her take the lead. Satan addressed her and Adam put up with it. Adam let her do the deciding. Let her reason with Satan and work the logic out. And then after she had decided to sin, she turned to him and offered him some of the fruit and he took it and ate it. After that, when God came to deal with them, he dealt with man. He called to the man, where are you? And we began to learn something about the gender roles that God intended. Now, their punishment complicated things. The woman got the punishment of pain in childbirth, but also the punishment that from then on she would desire to rule her husband. Wasn't the way it was in creation. That's part of the punishment. Uh, And the man was cursed because, Genesis says specifically, because he followed the lead of the woman in this spiritual matter. He was also supposed to have to work hard for a living was his punishment. Now, we saw all that at the creation and the fall and the punishment. Then we went over the New Testament, and in the New Testament... There are a number of places where gender roles become a problem. I told you gender roles were messed up. They were a problem in the first century. They're still a problem today. And in the first century when the Bible writers dealt with the problems caused by gender role confusion in marriage, in church leadership, uh, in worship roles, a number of different times it's brought up. And you had the scriptures last week uh, that show you those. And every time the Holy Spirit answers, not by saying, this is the way culture is, not by saying, go back to the curse or the fall. He goes all the way back to creation and says, this is the order of things. This is the way God created things. So all of that that we learned at the creation is now our basis for the foundation of gender roles. And hopefully we understand it a little bit better about men. We looked at it all of that last week. We looked at some New Testament teaching about biblical manhood. And we decided the three things that I picked to mention were that a real man, a biblical man, a biblical masculinity causes a man to want to lead, want to protect, and want to provide. That's the nature of manhood. Now, if you didn't get all that, I think we taped it and you can get it and listen to it. Uh, But whether you heard it all or not, I hope you young ladies heard it. I hope someday when you start looking for a man, you look for a real man. One who wants to lead, who is able to lead, who wants to provide, is able to provide, who wants to protect. Look for a real man. Now, today we tackle one that's a little bit harder for me, uh, womanhood. Biblical womanhood. Uh, I told you when I started this series it was going to be unpopular. Today we're getting unpopular. It's going to be biblical, but it's going to be unpopular. Uh, I admonish you to listen carefully, especially if you're visiting with us and don't know where I'm coming from on some of this. Listen carefully. I guarantee you some of you will hear me say things that I didn't say. Because this topic's that way. Some of you have already got in your head, some of you already got a bad attitude today, I guarantee you. You think we're going somewhere, I don't want to go, and you're going to hear things that I didn't say. So listen carefully, that's one reason we are taping this, aren't we? 
Get this all down. Okay. All right. Let's add to our knowledge this morning. We know a little bit about biblical manhood. Uh, We know about creation. Let's add to that. And we're going to look at two New Testament passages that talk us a little, tell us a little bit about biblical womanhood. We're going to go back to Ephesians 5, which was just read to you, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And Paul is giving instructions to all the different groups in the church here in Ephesians 5. And he says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, before we discuss it, let's go ahead and read Titus 2. There's a passage there that I think is helpful. In Titus 2, <coughs> excuse me, Paul is telling Titus how to deal with every different group in the church. And one thing he says is, he says, have the older women train the younger women. That's something we're doing a little better at now, but we're still not real great at it. The older women should train the younger women. And he tells them to have the older women train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, be kind and be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the Word of God. All right, now we've got two passages here. Before we get into real details, let's deal with the problem. That word, that submit thing. Uh, We've got to deal with that because it's a highly charged word. In fact, there's probably no more politically incorrect word uh, that I could use today than telling women to submit to men. Uh, That concept is completely off the charts in America. So let's talk about submission a little bit. And make sure we understand what it is. Biblical submission, the word itself just means to line up under, to line up in proper order. It's really a military term. And what it means is that there is an order to things. Well, we learned that a couple of weeks ago at creation. There was an order to things. And every time in the New Testament the gender roles are a problem, the writer goes back and says, there's an order to things. Okay, so that's what submission has to do with. But let's clear up a little confusion. Uh, first, submission is not slavery. Okay? Now in some parts of the world it is. Some parts of the world people read other religious books or even the Bible sometimes and make submission a, a slavery thing almost. And not just other parts of the world, I'm sure that in some homes in America, and maybe some homes represented here today, it's pretty close to slavery. Well, that's a, um, an, a, an abuse of the term. That's not Bible. It may be in some country, it may be in some homes, but it's not Bible. Submission is not anything close to slavery. If you read all of Ephesians 5 there, it tells men to, to love their wives as themselves. To care for them, to sacrifice for them, to give themselves for them, to be willing to die for them, to certainly live for them. That's not anything like a master-slave relationship. In fact, if you read all of Ephesians there, submission is not a wife thing. I know men like Ephesians 5.22. They think that's a really good verse. But they're taking it out of context. In fact, the word submit's really not even in that verse, believe it or not. 
5.21 is where it starts. And what Paul says is, you Christians submit to one another. And then he starts a list. And in verse 22 he says, wives to your husbands. Doesn't even say submit in the Greek. He said, you all submit to one another. Wives to your husbands. And if we outlined it, it would say submit in big letters up at the top. And then under it, it would say wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters. He just goes through everybody. Everybody submit to each other. Wives, there's a way you submit to your husbands. Husbands, there's a way you love your wives that is a submissive thing. Children, you submit to your parents in a certain way. Slaves, you submit to your masters in a certain way. And then he even says, masters, you treat your slaves this way, like you're submitting to them. Okay? So submission's not a wife thing, it's a Christian thing. Secondly, submission is not about inequality. It's not about somebody being better or stronger or anything unequal to the other one. Remember in Genesis, the term for woman was created to be a helper for man. And we could look at that word and say, well, that's kind of unequal. No, the word helper, the very same word is used of the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, the Holy Spirit is our helper. That doesn't mean He's um, unequal to us. He, he is unequal to us, but not below us. He's actually above us, but He's our helper. Okay? Hebrews 13, 6 says, God is our helper. Doesn't make Him anything less than us. That's the term. So it's not about inequality. It has nothing to do with inequality. I was reading one illustration of this. Somebody was talking about dancing, how one person leads, one partner leads in a dance. Now, I don't have any firsthand knowledge of dance. I have genetic problems with rhythm, you know. <laughs> Plus, I was raised when it was easy. You just didn't dance. You don't have to think about it. But I, I do kind of understand it, and I've seen people dance. I've seen, I'm, I'm talking about real dance where the, the ballroom or the waltz or the tango or something where it, it involves a partnership is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now, when I see that, it amazes me what a couple can do and how the man can lift the woman and they do all these things together and they're in perfect time and everything just looks beautiful and all of that. And one of them may be stronger than the other one. He may do the lifts and, and all that. But he can't do them alone. But when I watch that, you realize it never enters my head that they're unequal some way. I think of them completely as a team. They're partners. They're working together. Each one is doing their part. And it makes a beautiful thing. So it's not about inequality. And thirdly, submission is not about, uh, is not absolute. When we say submit to, a woman be subject to her husband, that doesn't mean every crazy thing he dreams up. You know, if he's not a godly leader, then there's a lot of things she can't submit to. It's not an absolute thing. It's not, and some men think of it this way. Well, 522 says you submit, so if I say this, you've got to do this. No. Here, read the rest of Ephesians 5. Don't stop with verse 22. Uh, submission, the concept 
will never allow a woman to, to let a husband lead her into sin. A godly woman would never steal with a husband because he wants to. Would never get drunk with a husband because he wants to. Would never get involved in pornography because he wants to. Would never break the law because he wants to. If a husband is requesting something illegal or immoral or degrading, then he's not loving. He's not giving. He's not sacrificing self like he's supposed to be. It's all out of whack. And, And to use this term of submission as something absolute is not right. A wife's got to resist that. Now the attitude of submission, she will try to convey to him that she doesn't really like resisting his will, that she wishes, she longs that he would stop sinning, that he would lead her in righteousness, is how that would come across. But submission is not an absolute thing in any way. What submission is, it is a necessary and natural part of any partnership. That's what we're talking about here. The the creation ideal of man and woman being made to be a partnership. The two become one. And submission has to happen in any partnership. In, In businesses, most businesses start with one guy who has an idea. One person thinks something up. Here's a good idea. I'll start a business like that. And they may do it alone for years. They may be able to. And then the business gets big enough where they need some kind of help. They may need some sales help or they may need some financial expertise or they may need somebody to run the operations, some skill that the entrepreneur doesn't have. And they form a partnership with somebody. And if that partnership works, it's because both of them or three or four, however many there are in the partnership, they all submit at the right time. One's got expertise in something, the other one submits to that. One of them may be the lead partner. One of them may be the majority stockholder. One may be the CEO, whatever. But for this partnership to work, they got to submit. That is necessary and natural in any partnership. Some men are probably a little confused about this. Let me try some sports, see if I can help you with this. You understand quarterbacks and wide receivers? Okay, Who's the boss? Who's the head? Who's the lead? Well, the quarterback. He makes the final call. He he decides in the huddle, no, we're going to do this this time. He's the head on the field. Now, That doesn't mean he doesn't listen to the others. In fact, a good quarterback always listens to the others. He gets their input. That's what the huddle is. He gets them in there and they tell him, I think this will work. I think that'll work. If a wide receiver comes back to the huddle and says, I know I can take my guy. He's not guarding me on this route. Let me have this one. A good quarterback listens and says, all right, we'll run that this time. Okay. Now think about that. You understand that concept. How about if a rookie quarterback comes in and there's an old receiver that knows all the tricks in the book. He knows a whole lot more than the quarterback. He knows a lot more, but he knows for the team to work, he's got to submit. 
He will provide his input. He'll do everything he can. In fact, he will work to help grow that leader. He will help that le- the rookie become a leader. However shaky he is, he's got to grow up for this team to work. So that receiver will help him learn to be a leader. He'll support him. He'll help him. He'll work with him. He won't try to take over the huddle. He understands the submission thing. It's a necessary part of any partnership, and especially in one like marriage where two become one. All right, so that's some things about submission. Now that we got that out of the way, let's try to describe the nature of womanhood. What is biblical womanhood like? Now, understand, I can't possibly describe this. Last week I didn't describe biblical manhood. I gave you three things that made you kind of think, oh, that's the nature of it. All right, today let me give you three things that are kind of the nature of womanhood. First, she completes the man. Now, I understand this is just as politically incorrect as the submit word. Feminists hate this concept. I don't want to talk about this. Uh, By the way, the feminist movement, remember it started back at the fall. woman would have the desire to rule over her husband. Been around a long time. It just changes forms every once in a while. Feminism, or the desire to rule over for that matter, teaches women that they are strong, that they are independent, that they are self-sufficient, that they don't need a man. Okay, they can do everything for themselves. And I understand in today's lack of real men, that's kind of necessary sometimes. It's unfortunate, but it is. Okay. Uh, that's one way to live. But it's not the way we were designed. Okay, and we're, we're talking about the nature of manhood and womanhood. We were designed because man needed woman. God designed us so that the two could become one and they would be complete. Now, it's not just a necessary role. Understand it's a God-created role. God came up with this. And it's not just a physical sexual thing, although that's kind of symbolic of the whole thing. That's not just, it's, it's an emotional thing. It's a strength balancing weakness thing. Men and women are different. They have different strengths and different weaknesses and they're complementary. If you make a list of feminine strengths, feminine weaknesses, masculine traits, weaknesses and strengths, they all fit together really good. It's a God-designed thing. That's the nature of womanhood. The nature of manhood is that he needs completing. He's incomplete. It's not good for him to be alone. Secondly, nature of womanhood is that she respects and affirms male leadership. Now this is really hard because I realize this depends This is very, very dependent on the quality of male leadership. And male leadership is so bad these days because we've got the gender role so messed up. It's so bad that it's really hard to affirm it and respect it sometimes. Sometimes it's not worthy of respect. I understand all that. But we're talking about not how it is. We're talking about the nature of womanhood. And hopefully we can get back there someday. 
This affirming and respecting leadership, it's a whole lot easier the more worthy (laughs) that the male leadership is of respect and admiration and affirmation. But it's still the nature of womanhood. Let me say it this way, and maybe this will help you. Because I know some women are sitting there saying, well, my husband's not a leader. How can I respect that? How can I affirm that? Well, I almost worded this differently, and let me tell you what I considered now. Let's say it this way. The nature of womanhood is a disposition to respect and affirm male leadership. An inclination to do that, a desire to do that, a spirit to do that. She she has a spirit of wanting to affirm and respect male leadership. Sometimes it's not worthy of it. I understand that. But you want to. Kind of like the receiver in the corner. But you help when you can. Now, I don't know if I'm getting this clear or not. In the business world, I used to have a few employees who worked for me that didn't have an attitude of respecting my leadership. Okay? Sometimes they just had problems. They thought they knew everything or something like that. A lot of times it was because I was promoted over them. A lot of times, almost always, I was younger than the people that reported to me. Okay? And that creates a problem. A lot of them think this kid doesn't know anything. You know, he's not going to lead me anywhere. Well, good leadership will win a lot of that over. If you're good, eventually they'll say, okay, the kid knows what he's talking about maybe. And and that's good. But sometimes that attitude is still there. Some would follow orders, but they had no spirit of respecting or affirming my leadership. Well, That happens in the male-female world too. I understand that. But the nature of womanhood is that she wants to. She doesn't want to be independent, self-sufficient away. She wants to be a partner. She wants to affirm and respect that leadership. Okay, thirdly, the nature of womanhood. The The third part is the home is the her primary sphere. Okay, Titus. Let's go back to Titus. A little scripture here will help you. Some of you are tightening up on me. Titus said, be busy at home. That's what to train younger women to do. Be busy at home. The Greek literally means workers at home. One part of the Greek word is work. One part of the Greek word is home. Work at home. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, this archaic, chauvinistic nut job is trying to tell me that all women can do is be housewives. You're not listening. I told you you wouldn't listen today. I didn't say that. I'm talking about the primary nature of womanhood. And I'm saying there's a huge difference between being a housewife and being what the Bible calls a homemaker, a worker at home. That's their primary place. Okay. Now I realize this is the most countercultural thing I've said so far. 
I realize a lot of you, a lot of my female audience works outside the home. And I know some of you want to. I know some of you have to. I know there's lots of different reasons. I know that economic situations force us to sometimes. I know society encourages women to work outside the home. I think it's changed a little bit over the last few years. But there was a period where women were made to feel less than a woman if they didn't get outside the home and work. Society encouraged it. It denigrated uh, working at home, being a homemaker. I know there's lots of reasons. But let, let me just go to the big picture here. We're talking nature of things, folks. Let me go to the big picture. Overall, in our society, it's a way lot different from when I was a child. Okay? Increasingly, there is no one at home. There's no one there. Now, now, everybody gets there eventually. The kids and the husband and the wife kind of cross paths at the same address. But there's nobody at home. You may not like it, but you know what I'm telling you is true. Okay? Now, if you understand that's true, let me just ask you one question. How's that working out for us? How's this old society doing now that we've changed all that? Now you can argue that it's caused by something else if you want to, but I'm saying this is a big part of it. I'm saying if you look at adultery and divorce and juvenile delinquency and and, and drug use among kids and everything else you can think of a statistic for, they're getting worse for some reason. They're getting worse for a lot of reasons. But this is a biggie. This whole series is the answer to that. We have changed the nature of marriage. We've changed the, the nature of the gender roles that God assigned us. We've got them all confused. We're trying different things. Male and females are not fulfilling their God-designed roles, and it's not working too well. Okay? So when I say it's her primary sphere. I'm not saying a woman can't work outside the home. That's fine. You can do that. And and I'm not saying being in the home is the answer. You can be, you can uh, forsake the role of being a biblical homemaker by being outside the home 80 hours a week. You know, you can take a job where that's all you do is work outside the home and forsake the biblical homemaking thing. Or you can stay home 24-7 and watch TV all day or shop all day or read People magazine all day or feed your kids TV dinners. You can stay home and do all that and forsake homemaking. So it's not about being in the house. It's about doing the role. And a woman's primary sphere is to make the home. Man's curse was to work hard for a living. Not woman's. Now, let's get off of that. The ideal. Let's talk about the ideal again. The ideal could be expressed this way. The New Testament says this. A husband leads like Christ, and the wife responds like the bride of Christ. Now, I realize all the other stuff I've said 
may have got all kinds of ideas going in your head. I don't like that and that can't be true and all that. But if you think of it this way, this is the ideal. A husband's supposed to lead with the love and the giving and the sacrifice of Christ. And a woman sees that and understands this partnership and what he's, he, he is and what he needs and what he's done and responds to that like the bride of Christ. not the battle of the sexes that started at the fall. It's a loving partnership thing. Now, we find another ideal in the Old Testament. Proverbs 31 is about the ideal woman. And I'm not going to take time to read Proverbs 31. I hope you want to go home and read it when we get done here. But it says that the ideal woman is creative and industrious and intelligent and resourceful and enterprising. All these things. It's it's not a drab, monotonous, suffocating thing to be a housewife and a mother. If you read Proverbs 31, you end up intimidated if you're a woman. Because it's an amazing thing. It's an ideal now. Understand that. It's not a description of a real woman, I don't think. Because this one can do everything. But when we see what the Bible portrays as an ideal, we understand how far off that is from what people would denigrate the role of being a homemaker as. Those who hear about what I just said about the womanhood in the Bible, and they say, well, that stifles women. They can't use their talents. They can't exercise their gifts and all. You need to read Proverbs 31. The Bible talks all about that. About how gifted women are. Woman in the Bible is not repressed or enslaved. She's quite literally a home maker. A positive force. An essential force. In this home and family partnership that we're talking about. Just just read through Proverbs 31 sometimes and see the kind of things that you see in here. It starts off says she's trustworthy. Her husband can trust her to run the home. He can trust her with the checkbook. He trusts her with the finances. He's not afraid that she's going to squander the family's resources. Rather, she's frugal. She saves. She does wise shopping. There's all kinds of studies, by the way, for you folks in the workforce that show if a woman stays home and shops wisely and all that, she saves a whole lot more and she makes working. Yeah, not in your case perhaps, but there's studies like that. Anyhow, this describes the wife of noble character. It says she's like the merchant ship. She seeks out bargains. She, she goes looking for the, the best buys, the wisest buys, the best quality things for her family. She's industrious. She's resourceful. She works with her own hands. This is what she loves to do, it says. In fact, the very term uh, literally means that doing things for her family gives her joy. She sacrifices for her family. Says she rises up early to get things ready to prepare meals. She cares more about her family than she does her own comfort. She's not lazy. In fact, she's disciplined. She's diligent. She's working all the time. 
Not only that, she, she takes care of the home that way. And then it says that she sees a good bargain. She finds a field that's a bargain. And she buys this field and she buys some vines and she plants a vineyard. Now she's got a home business. Okay? And she operates that on top of taking care of the home. She's managed the family house uh, finances well, so she now goes into this business. Now, she's strong. She's enterprising. She's confident. But her home is where she's anchored. This is not some picture of a poor, enslaved, barefoot, and pregnant housewife. This is a strong woman. She's not frail. She's not self-indulgent. She's not materialistic. She's not self-centered. She's not insecure. She's not self-absorbed. She is vigilant over her household. She's industrious for its welfare. It says she's one of the main reasons for her husband's success and his good reputation. Then it comes to this, her children arise and call her blessed, and her husband also. He praises her. That's what fulfills her. That's what satisfies her heart. She doesn't feel trapped. She's fulfilling the priorities that God established. Home is where she finds her greatest joy, where she has her most important Influence. That's her primary sphere. It's an ideal, I understand that. But it's a godly ideal. So we've looked at three foundations. Looked at the nature of marriage, the nature of manhood, the nature of womanhood. I hope we're laying a groundwork that will help you young people that are still listening. Next week, we're going to talk about the nature of parenthood. We'll wrap up this series with that one. Attention is appreciated. The lesson is yours. If you're here this morning and need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we're going to sing a song and make that easy for you. If you need to come to the front for any reason, come.